Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the smooth sounds of the Spaga Band. And this is the Touchdowns All Day with John Barber Podcast. The podcast that we record in bathrobes. Are you wearing your bathrobe? Metaphorically speaking, of course, it's a sonic bathrobe. Brought to you by the Spaga Band. This is their song, Marionette in the Snow. We have a very special podcast today. The leader of the Spaga Band, one Aaron Magner, famed keyboardist extraordinaire, sat down and had a chat with yours truly. And I asked him all the questions that you guys tweeted at us and emailed us and sent with the hashtag touchdowns all day. It's a very in-depth conversation. It got quite a bit longer and deeper into music than I would have ever expected. So for those of you who are musicians, or in a band, or both, and you want to know a little bit about what makes our world tick, this interview will not disappoint It's a beautiful, in-depth piece that I just didn't think we would even talk about most of this stuff, but we did go there. And it occurred to me afterwards that we talk about this stuff all the time. So it makes sense. Now, for those of you who aren't, you know, who, who might not be that interested in listening to this level of depth conversation... You might have to take a little bit of responsibility to entertain yourself. Just a little bit of responsibility. So don't put it all on me and Magner to entertain you. Don't make it our job to keep you happy. Go take a break. Get a snack. Have some carrots and ranch. Pack a bowl. Make yourself some Aspen Grove tea. Entertain yourself for a split second. But don't miss out on hearing the two of us go into improv music and all the different things that happen. Aaron talks about the Spaga Band. He talks about stuff that we do together into Disco Biscuits. And then we go ahead and we listen to Tron. The Tron Jam from the third set of the PlayStation Theater. From Thursday, 12-31-2015, the New Year's third set Tron Jam, Aaron and I listened to it together. We hope you're going to enjoy this episode. 
This is episode 14. It's Jason Fraticelli on bass. Matt Scarano on drums. So we don't have too long in this show to do the normal chatter, banter. We don't have too much time for it. Just wanted to let everybody know that we do have some Disco Biscuit shows to announce. We have November 14, 15 at the Roxian Theater. November 16 and 17 at the National. November 20 and 21 at the Higher Ground in Burlington, Vermont. November 22 and 23 at the SI Hall in Syracuse, New York. For those of you who live in Florida or like to travel to Florida, you can come see Aaron Magner and the Disco Biscuits playing December 11th, 12th, 13th, and 14th on a little mini Florida tour. Come on the Florida tour. It's going to be sunny. It's going to be fun. And there are going to be kind of smaller rooms. So it'll be interesting, more shreddy, probably brute force biscuits, I think. You will like it a lot. And then the big New Year's run, 1227, 1228, 1230, 1231 at the PlayStation Theater, smack damn in Times Square in New York City. And if you've never been to Times Square over New Year's, which most Biscuit fans have at this point, it's a special crazy experience. 
and the PlayStation Theater. We're closing down the PlayStation Theater. So, Mr. Aaron Magner and I are going to listen to the Tron from the third set of New Year's 2015 at the PlayStation Theater, and that's coming right up. And that's at the tail end of our super in-depth, crazy long conversation. So, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. But real quick, this episode, I just want to talk about, you know, there's a lot of football games this weekend, and I notice that a lot of coaches are kicking field goals and extra points. They're kicking extra points. They moved the extra point back 35 yards to try and drop the hint that this part of the game needs to go. There should be no kicking of anything except for at the start of the game. There should be no kicking for points unless there's no time left on the clock at all. Unless the clock expires while the ball's in the air. If the ball lands before the clock expires, the coach of the kicking team should be forced to retire, whether or not it goes in or not. None of this three points all the time is better than seven points sometimes. That is the worst philosophy of football right there. And really, Doug Peterson... Eagles head coach is the guy who gets this right. He's really the guy who understands it. And I hope all the coaches in the NFL emulate Doug Peterson for that very reason. Episode 14, our sponsor this week is Aspen Grove Tea. AspenGroveTea.com. Launched in May 2019 in Denver, Colorado. Aspen Grove Tea is a responsibly sourced tea and pure CBD isolate extracted from Colorado-grown hemp. And it encourages your natural rejuvenation of body and mind. The blends are made up of loose teas, herbs, spices, in conjunction with 99% pure CBD isolate, which, as we talked about on the last episode of the podcast, is the bioavailable form of CBD. So go get yourself some bioavailable CBD. AspenGroveTea.com. Use the discount code TOUCHDOWNS at checkout for 10% off the whole order. If you are in Colorado, through October, you can find Aspen Grove Tea at Cherry Creek Farmer's Market or the Stapleton Farmer's Market. And uh, go say hello for the on behalf of the podcast. And maybe they'll give you some free tea or something like that. They should. They have Awake, Spring, Summer, Rest, Great Tea Brands. I drink them. They're delicious. And this is maybe our last spot with these guys for a little bit. So I just wanted to thank them for being so cool to work with. AspenGroveTea.com. Use the discount code touchdowns at checkout for 10% off the whole order. So this is a, this is a long episode. We're just going to jump right in. Let's hit the theme song. Episode 14. We're mass communicating. We're mass
Ladies and gentlemen, we're here with Aaron Magner, famous keyboardist of the Disco Biscuits, and of course, band leader of the Spaga Band, www.spagaband.com, at Spaga Band for those of you who are on social networks. Aaron, you have some shows coming up this weekend. This podcast is going to drop after those shows are played. Are you nervous about these shows? How do you feel about them? I kind of am. I kind of am. There's a lot of exposure for me. You know, I'm not hidden behind um, walls of synths. I pretty much just have a grand piano um, and then one synth on top. Um, And then I run some effects from the piano. So, yeah, I'm fully exposed. I don't usually, you know, play concerts. I wasn't a recital kid growing up. I'm not used to a grand piano and an audience in front of me. I'm used to synthesizers and keyboards on all four sides and an audience in front of me. So, yeah, a little nervous. But I feel like that's always a good thing. And then I get into the zone. Wow. So just one synth with so it's all piano. It's all piano, and and the one synth is is rarely used. It's just to have a little bit of that you know type of personality of my personality um, in the music. So there's not necessarily a go to moment. It's to be able to have and to grab when I want to go for it. And, and I actually had this debate for a while. I wanted to keep it pure and organic and that type of thing. But you know, synths are such a part of my identity that I was wrestling with that whole thing and the compromise, if you will, of what I figured out was I, I installed pickups inside the piano. There's lows, mids, and highs, you know, just like kind of electromagnetic pickups like a guitar. And then I run that through through a couple of effects so that I have a little bit of an expression. Because I feel like your ears kind of fatigue when you're listening to one instrument and one sound as beautiful as some of these pianos can be. Your ears fatigue of it after a while. So when you put in an effect, and again, I'm not changing the piano into a synthesizer, but I'm giving it some sort of expression that you wouldn't normally hear out of a piano. And it's not running all the time. And it's mainly just like uh, cinematic reverbs and some delays. I, I, I say, like, if, if words like gravity or diffusion uh, is representative of reverb, um, stuff like that. So it can get a little bit more expressive. Notes will hold out for longer, and therefore I don't feel compelled to play as many notes, that type of thing. So it's kind of like a Rhodes philosophy, like you have a live instrument that you're miking with kind of 70s technology and then running that through a pedal board does that go through a pedal board yeah just a couple of pedals i was running it through my computer and then i just got like a pedal i feel like the aesthetic of having a computer on top of a piano which is part of my workflow at home needs to change i don't like that aesthetic so i feel like I agree with that. Yeah, I'm trying to get out of that, but I have not migrated into a pedal board yet. It's so easy with the computer, right? I can put any effect, I could bring it up, I could use little, you know, hot keys to trigger them, but just having a computer up there, I mean, even I gravitate, my eyes gravitate towards a screen. So I would imagine that, you know, an audience would as well. Yeah, I hear that. I mean, I feel like whenever I've put a computer on stage, It has added such an incredible amount of complexity for the value that I got out of it, but I don't really have a great MIDI trigger device, so to me there's not much in there. You have a ton of MIDI trigger devices. Why the real piano? Why not use a MIDI triggered piano with one of these like amazing piano sample libraries out there? 
the irony is that it might actually sound better by doing it that way, which is why a lot of piano players, you know, even the the upper echelon piano players that are playing stadiums and everybody's there for pianos, do a lot of um, you know keyboards inside of a shell, and you can just take a left and a right out, and it sounds perfect. And the samples are so so good these days. And you, I mean, what a crazy instrument it is that I play. Number one, it weighs you know the actual piano. Five thousand pounds, ten thousand pounds, however much a piano weighs, and then you can't ever really replicate the sound of a piano because if you need to amplify it, you need to put microphones in it, and there's no way to really, truly get the expressive sound of a piano other than listening to the sound resonate from the soundboard of it. So you put microphones on, and then if you're playing over a band, you've got to put it through monitors, and it never sounds good coming through monitors. You know, you want to listen to a piano coming from the soundboard of the piano, and that's why a grand piano sounds more grand than a baby piano, which sounds a little bit smaller, which sounds even, you know, an upright piano sounds even smaller than that. So the larger the soundboard, the you know bigger the sound. And that's what you really want to hear. But you can't necessarily get that unless you're in a concert hall designed for acoustic performances with a, you know, 11 foot grand. Right, right, right. But all that all that said, it's a marvel of like an instrument and you know, even just like the technology behind it. If you've ever opened up a piano or looked inside of it, it's really an incredible, incredible device. Um, and you know, the response of playing weighted keys and hammers hitting real notes and everything like that. You you play differently. The whole thing is got you know like a gestalt effect. Yeah. Okay. So you're, it's basically the keyboard itself, like the way the keyboard plays, is what you're. That's your primary reason, right? And also because, you know, this is a bit of a jazz trio in a way, is it not? Feels very jazzy to me. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, I mean, there's. There's a part of it that, you know, I'm reconnecting to a previous form of myself that I, you know, still remember, right? I'm not like, you know, 75 years old and can't remember the way that it was when I was only playing piano before I even discovered synthesizers. Like, I remember what it was like sitting in front of my piano all day long. Here, let me ask you, let me ask you a question. We had some, uh, we had a bunch of fan questions comes in and one of our fans asked, he said his three jazz piano players of all time are Thelonious Monk, McCoy Tyner, and Art Tatum. What great choices. And Yeah, those are his three. And I, I thought it was funny because mine are Thelonious Monk, McCoy Tyner, maybe Oscar Peterson, and maybe if I wanted to include a, a new a new guy, I would include maybe Jesus Molina. Um, who, who That did, guy. When you think of like... Do you know Jesus Molina? I do, man. His viral videos are just incredible, right? They're absolutely amazing. Hell of a player. So so who would you put in your three? If we're talking about just jazz for now, probably Red Garland in the simplicity that he was playing. Keith Jarrett in the expressiveness of his improvisation. I, the Colon Concert is kind of one of my favorite albums. Nice. Bill Bill Evans. Um, I mean, his voice, oh. his voicings, and his voice leadings. Um, you know, ha- having a- any of these players have an immediate identifiable sound, and it's part of how they approach their instrument, part of the theory behind it, and stuff like that. But they, they've all been influential in my formative years of playing, and I'm not necessarily going back and like you know, restudying academically how to play jazz. I'm just playing piano with a trio. <laughs> But I love all of those musicians that were just mentioned. So, so okay, so you're just you have a trio. 
Jason Fraticelli, obviously, old friend of mine. He calls you, you. He calls you guys? Johnny. Does anybody else call you Johnny? <laughs> it's so funny, and I'm always like, "Who?" He's like, "How's Johnny?" And I'm like, "Who?" <laughs> that was what the Northern Liberties crew called me when I used to go hang out with the Northern Liberties crew. Like, love it. Sean Buckets calls me Johnny. Uh, Frosty calls me Johnny. The whole crew calls me Johnny. What is so? How did you pick those guys? Did you audition them? Did you have the idea? Like, were you out hanging out with them? And then they, it just kind of how was the process of making the band? Once I realized that I wanted it to be um, to be a group setting, to be a trio setting, you know, to not have it be solo piano at least, I one hundred percent went towards Fraticelli. You know, he was local. I knew that I wanted local musicians, people that I would be able to tap and, you know, have rehearsals. And, you know, I didn't want to have to fly people in or go to them and all that type of stuff. And I wanted somebody that played upright bass and that was versatile enough, wasn't just a crazy, you know, academic jazz guy. Fraticelli is all of that. You know, he really goes in and out of all different styles of music with the tons of different projects that he plays with. And then I needed a drummer, and I asked him also for a kind and versatile drummer, and he suggested Matt Scarano, and we kind of didn't look back. Yeah, Matt Scarano killed the project. Everything he plays is awesome. You guys have, you know, kind of a vibe that I haven't heard in a long time. It felt really fresh to me. When you guys do these songs, it feels like everybody's playing a really expressive line. How do you guys get to that point? Is there a creative process behind the songs that you could elaborate on? All the songs on this album, uh, the, the the genesis for them was basically, you know, me in front of a piano and then putting things into the box, you know, in Ableton. So whether it was setting up a mic or, you know, running a sampled piano so that I can get it quickly and easily into a computer... I, I don't write drum beats very quickly, so a lot of times when I wanted to write but over a drum beat, I actually went to Splice in order to get those and wrote a lot of the bass lines and stuff like that. So I, I had a solid framework for pretty much all these songs and then went into the studio and we demoed them for a couple of days and that's where they kind of like came to life and just like any recording process it you know takes the natural steps towards oh that's how this section will go that's how this transition or the segue will go into the next section and then a lot of you know sitting on it going back listening to the tapes listening to another take figuring out whether you know there's another section that needs to be inserted there was very little overdubs but there was definitely a lot of takes because we didn't really even know who we were as a trio yet you know we were still trying to figure out our collective voice before the songs really had a chance to come into their own you know we hadn't played any concerts yet we hadn't been able to explore these songs in a a live setting um so it was kind of all experimentation in the studio and when you guys are in the studio i mean these guys are i mean fraticelli's a jazz cat i don't know matt scarano very well but i've read his bio and it seems that he seems to be a very well-educated well put together drummer. His drumming is amazing. He's also a composer. He's a teacher. He does. A, he has a you know a very strong musical base and co- communicative music. You know how sometimes there's some musicians that they don't know how to communicate music. They just know how to play it. And then there's other musicians that are really you know excellent at communicating it to people. So do you guys? You know a lot of times. I feel like bands get together and they just hammer it out. And a lot of times bands get together and they hand out charts and they talk about the key signatures and the changes and stuff like that. How did you guys fall in that spectrum of just raw to to uh, kind of 
masterminded, if you will. But what's interesting about Scarano is that he's a drummer that knows musical theory, right? It's very much a unicorn when it comes to drummers, where they, you know, they, they'll make suggestions that you don't usually hear from the land of percussion. <laughs> you know, like, like, oh, so you're on an F right now? Yeah, try going to a B, but put in that sharp 13. Like, wait, <laughs> like, what? what I've never we? heard that from a drummer before. Right? Um, and, and, and Hull actually be the one that will, you know, kind of chart stuff out for us if we need to, you know, a quick form, uh, a quick form done for us. He's really good at that because he is an educator and a composer and went through that whole system as well. Um, the, the, I found a lot of parallels with this project and um, the biscuits, and that's where I feel most comfortable in that these guys, yeah, they're amazing players they're amazing you know musicians composers um you know educators all in their own right and and i say that at each show because i really give them praise um especially you know for committing themselves to this type of project they're such sought out musicians and it's a new thing and i'm not really a jazz guy you know i like jazz i guess the way that i say it is i'm a friend of jazz um you know but these guys play with like you know crazy jazzers all the time that you know run circles around everybody but there's a lot of commonality between this project and the biscuits in improvisation which is just everybody has really open ears big ears good reaction knowing when to speak knowing when not to speak knowing how to have those types of interactions that you're supposed to have on a high level of communication and once i figured that part out then everything else became a lot easier. Then all of a sudden it wasn't about the compositions. It wasn't about trying to impress anybody else. It was just about the uh, group interplay of what was happening, even if it was over a you know written part of the song. Yeah. Yeah, you could f- kind of feel that. Like it feels, it feels like you guys are interweaving your lines around each other, but not in like a, like a, oh, I, I wrote this out type of way, but kind of like you're, you're you're grooving with each other on the take. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, speaking of biscuits, I got a really interesting question uh, from one fan. They asked, the Disco Biscuits were, you know, uh, I don't even know what the name of the band was when we started. And there was, who knows, you know, Phil Ravenscroft was in the band playing guitar. Ben Hayflick was playing keyboards. It was really loose. We didn't have any songs. It was, it was we we're playing in basements. And then one day you joined the band. That was a Wednesday. That was a Wednesday. So uh, there was a, a request um, from Spacebird mating tweet that you just kind of describe that Wednesday and your first day of meeting the Biscuits or what was to become the Biscuits. Oh, man, you're making me really go back in time. Maybe I am far removed from that uh, formative version of myself. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't even, I barely remember that myself. I mean, where were we? Okay. So I can definitely remember it was before we were called the Disco Biscuits, right? You know, the party tent, Zexy, whatever the, the, the previous names of, right. uh, of the Biscuits were. But I definitely remember hearing you guys before, you know, getting the call from Mark to come join the band because the keyboard player had had left um so i remember walking down 40th and pine 42nd and pine there was like those those uh, the great beige block 
right? Was that what it was called? Bass yeah. block. And so I, rem- right, yeah. I remember hearing some music coming out of there. Now, I was a freshman at the time, and I remember being like, that sounds like cool music, but th- I don't know who any of those people are. I didn't have the you know fortitude to just walk into a party of which were probably upperclassmen and didn't really know anybody. But I definitely remembered that moment of walking by Beige Block, wherever it was, somewhere between Pine and, and, and Chestnut. Um, and then... Mark giving me a call not long after that and then coming into practice for the first time in the basement of God knows what house it was. It was definitely a basement building. And that's where I met you guys for the first time. So I definitely can recall that. And I can recall our first show at Smokey Joe's, too, with Paul Gaiman. Yes. With Paul Gaiman. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We did like uh, we played like. In between the kitchen door and the bathroom door, and the back of the in the back of the bar. Totally, we played Aqualung. Yes, yes. <laughs> that was those were funny years back then. So I think that yeah, that was I think the gig you're talking about was probably at that the house that we played a bunch of times on Forty Second and Pine with all the kids from American University. We used to come up and hang out with Lesser and Fundos and that whole gang. So. Yeah, it was a really long time ago, though. So let's let's move on to like something a little bit more current. The fans want to know when you, how do you what is your process for T-shirts? Do you do you have a way of do you have a responsibility to the fans to have an excellent supply of interesting T-shirts, or is that just something that happens naturally for the fan for the shows? For for T-shirts, are you saying merchandise? Yeah. Like backstage, you have like a, a, a like a like a something filled with just dope T-shirts, and you just choose how you're feeling on a particular day. Like, uh, oh, stage shirts you're talking, yeah, not stage not merchandise t-shirt. T-shirts. <laughs> My, I mean, uh, I don't have much variety, but I try and keep up with it. Right, so there's only so many black v-necks that I can wear until I just end up looking like the entire rest of the jam band keyboard players that also suddenly started wearing black v-necks and I'm pretty sure that I started that trend but now all of a sudden <laughs> Joel Cummins uh, you know Jamie Shields everybody's just rocking a black v-neck everyone in Rufus Day Soul yeah, exactly, exactly. And, uh, it's, but that is definitely my, my, my go-to. God knows how many drawers of black uh, v-necks I have. Uh, I like to wear like pat- black shirts, always black shirts, and patterns. And I definitely curate them by browsing the internet as I'm trying to fall asleep. And I feel like I'm 50-50 on the ones that arrive that actually look good or they're a good quality t-shirt. So I've got a lot of bullshit t-shirts that will never make it onto stage and you know exist somewhere in the back of my closet yeah I ha- so maybe that will be a thing maybe we sell those maybe that's like a thing the magner leftover shirts becomes a thing i mean you got to wear them on stage if you want them to become a thing for sure if you were oh interesting if you wore them on stage yeah you could definitely put up a website and 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 find people who need those shirts for sure i have a bunch of disco biscuit shirts like I have shirts with like our faces on them and stuff like that. It's very awkward for me to wear them, but they're good. If you're going to go running or something like that, you're sweating a shirt. It's pretty good. That's what you wear when you run is a picture of yourself. Sometimes. Yeah. I don't know. 
So I don't know what to do with those shirts. I feel bad. Like I don't, confidence. I like that. I don't want to wear them in public, really, because it feels a little, you know, on the nose to wear a, <laughs> pictures like that. But I also like want to keep them because it's cool that somebody made them, put the effort in, and it's funny and stuff like that. And you know, it's a, totally it's nostalgic. So I don't know what to do with them necessarily, and they pile up. I need like a, a room for them. I think that we should start a side business of, you know, T-shirts that are in our individual wardrobes that we no longer want or no longer need that we could then put up on a website and sell. I love it. Maybe we give the business to Ben Baruch. I don't know. Well, he did say that his uh, set break is over shirt. The, ironically, the black V-neck sold out almost immediately. So there must be a I did. ton of... I did hear that. A demand. Yeah, there's a ton of keyboard players out there who are stocking up on their black V-necks as we speak. <laughs> I heard it was all Jamie Shields and Joe Cummins that bought them all. (laughs) It's possible. It's possible. So let's talk about the biscuits. Let's talk about... uh, Awesome. I got a lot of questions. This was surprising to me. I got a lot of questions about eras of patches, sounds. You know, somebody was like, bring back the Gates of Hell patch. Do you want to tell us what the Gates of Hell patch is? I I don't even remember. I thought it was a song or a jam. Was I wrong about that? Uh, it, it was used in jams. It was literally a preset, and it was just like a cool gated patch that would just go in a particular rhythm that the fans latched onto. It had a cool. It was literally called Gates of Hell, um, you know, and it became identifiable with a certain era of the Disco Biscuits, and, and that, to me, is what's cool about my setup kind of evolving and you know i mean you and i could have a side conversation about you know too many keyboards or you know change of keyboards or whatever it is but there's definitely definable eras depending on what instrumentation that we're playing and that goes for everybody you know what what guitar you're using what pedals you're using you know what type of keyboards that i'm using so certain sounds that are indicative of a certain keyboard are indicative of a certain era and that's kind of cool like i go back and i listen to grateful dead and i could immediately tell what year it is, you know, give or take pretty much a year, depending on what's happening in keyboard world. So things like that I feel are, are cool. I don't need to always switch it up, but my keyboard rig is always somewhat evolving. So it is neat when you hear a definitive sound that you can identify it as, oh, that's 2003 Gates of Hell. And did, did we release, did Bisco Lives have a song on it that was Gates of Hell? Was there a jam song that was released that was based on that patch? If there is, I'll find it for you. Yeah, well, we should play that on the podcast. I think it'd be good for people to hear what it is. I would like to know personally. I remember us like talking about it, especially at the Bethlehem studio. So I remember that stuff. I just don't remember where we used it. I thought it was a song on Bisco Lives. I thought we made like a six minute instrumental out of that and some other stuff. It's not quite sure where it is. Is that where the bionic the bionic helix is that on Bisco Lives? Yeah, that's on Bisco Lives. Yeah, I thought it was the section after that. Did we make like another song out of that called Gates of Hell, which was the patch? I I don't think there was ever a song called Gates of Hell, but I could be wrong. I'm at the Huey Lewis stage of my career where I don't remember decades anymore, so, you know. Exactly. I'd definitely be wrong. <laughs> so we do have a bunch of keyboard players in the audience. They want to know what process do you use to get fresh sounds for the new Disco Biscuits? For 2019 2020 disco biscuits what's the process that you use to walk on stage with fresh buttons to press 
you know, the the main sounds that are coming out of my rig these days are from the the Access Virus, which is the white one, the little white one, and then a Prophet T6, which is the black one on my left side. Um because of the integration now of computers and keyboards, it's easier to be able to organize your patches in advance. And, you know, there's software where you can just hook your keyboard directly up to proprietary software from that company. And you can kind of like redo your library. It's sometimes easier to program sounds on there if they're more intricately designed modulations. It's kind of easier to do it on the computer sometimes than it is internally on the synth. Um, so, and it's more inspiring, you know, I don't do it obviously for every show or every month, but you know, when I need a little inspirato and maybe it's been a while and I need to refresh myself with what's going on, I'll definitely put in a few more sounds so I could have some fun with what my reaction is going to be in that moment. Right. I, I definitely, because I'm a synth nerd, I love playing around with synths at home, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be fitting within a band context. Right. So it's always interesting to see what my reaction is going to be of, oh, right, I remember really liking this song last week, when I, this sound last week when I was playing around with it, but played in a live environment or in that specific moment was a bad choice. So how do you make a bad choice into a better choice? You know, you have to no synthesis and you know you start with your like adsrs and you start to you know put in some modulation or you adjust the frequency or whatever it is and you could sculpt a sound live sometimes it works better than others <laughs> you know sometimes it's really inspiring to be able to dial something in immediately i mean J jamie shields has this process that he calls uh, rpg mm -hmm which stands for random patch generator, which sounds scientific, <laughs> but it's really him just like, you know, like rolling the knob to wherever it ends up. And then whatever sound it is on there, that's what he plays. And then he'll sculpt it. And because of his unique talent playing synthesizers, he's able to sculpt it perfectly and quickly, regardless of what the sound is. And then he gets into, you know, these little queeps with his band that are like, dude, why didn't you save that patch? That was awesome. Yeah. Why do you have to go go through and sculpt sounds every single night? Just figure out how to save them and write them down on a piece of paper where they're located. <laughs> so he, he's, been getting, he's been getting better at that too. I don't know. It's an addiction that us you know, synth players have. We have a lot of choices and part of maturity, I guess, is to narrow down what those choices are and figure out what works and realize what doesn't work. And it's still a growing process, obviously. But you know, but fun. And it keeps it keeps me on my toes. Definitely keeps you on your toes, you know, hopefully in a good way. And it keeps the audience on their toes, too. Of like, you know, that's a cool new sound as opposed to like we were talking about earlier, fatiguing of a typical sound. Now, that all being said, it's nice to have the staples, which is why the JP 8000 always exists. Mm -hmm. um, I don't go to it every show, but it's always there because that is a uniquely, you know, definable sound of the Disco Biscuits. So that will always be there mm. you know and then the rig will i don't know stabilize and evolve simultaneously well do you think so for keyboard players out there who are like i want to play like magner you th you think an essential skill for a, a synth player in today's world is the ability to play a line maybe with one hand and have that playing be consistent while also being able to adjust the sound with another hand 
and basically be able to do that at any point in time. And whenever you're in the improv, this line's great, but the sound's not right. I'm going to stick with the line and adjust this. You have to be able to not only play the keyboard, but also the ADSRs and the other controls simultaneously. Is that Would that be accurate to say? I mean... Probably the most efficient way to do it is, you know, to know exactly what patches are going to work in any given situation. But we play in a, you know, majority improvisational band. So that doesn't always work. So when you go to a keyboard, and this is something at least that I've learned years ago, is if I go to a keyboard and start playing a line, but it's not necessarily the sound that either I was looking for, or that I was hoping for, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Don't don't change patches like that's got to be the most annoying thing for everybody, you know, for the other musicians to react to like, oh, and now it's this sound and now it's this sound or to the audience as well. I mean, to me, it is psychologically a little bit more comfortable of like, oh, shit, I went to the wrong patch and I meant to go two patches over. But you know what? I don't get that ability. It's like now I'm already playing a line, so I have to make the patch that I'm playing work. And most of the time. I hope it does that. Sometimes it doesn't. And then I'm just kind of like stuck there. And I I, I, I grit my teeth waiting for the moment where I can get off of that patch. You know, I don't want to mess up the rest of the flow of what's going on in that section. So I'll try and wait for a moment, whether it's like a break, um, which, you know, sometimes doesn't come fast enough, a drop, something where I can get off of that sound and have like a reset. Uh, But yeah, I mean, you have to know your synthesis. You don't have to be playing the synthesizer with your left hand of just turning knobs. But, you know, you need to know how to quickly sculpt something if you're playing in an improvisational band. I think, I guess there's other schools of thought on it where you just like have your patch and you know that that patch is going to do what it's meant to do and can't do anything else. Yeah, you probably have a small group of patches that you like. And then, you know, that's kind of more the older philosophy maybe when you had a Rhodes and a Whirly and a piano and an organ and they're all basically what they are you can make little changes to them but now with the synth world you're like you're basically paging through groups of patches looking for something really unique and interesting and then you end up on the sound and you think it's going to work and then when you put it into the jam you feel like maybe the sound has a different vibe than you thought when it's live in a huge room with all this other music going on. And then you feel like you have to sculpt right away. And that's that's interesting because I never really thought about that. Like the concept of live sculpting. You know, for me, I do it a little bit, but it, it doesn't, I, I don't have the power to really do too much. I can change distortions. I can add some delays. I can go to my synth pedal here and there. But I can't really sculpt the attack of a sound too well. I can't do some of these other things. Well, you can with your fingers. Are there... You know, like... Yeah, a little bit with the fingers. Let me ask you a question. Are there patches that you want to get into the biscuits, like you, you're you using in jams, but you just can't make them work? Definitely. Definitely. That, that's kind of what I was alluding to before. You know, I'll set up these keyboards in my house, usually one at a time. Um, and I'll work my way through them of just like, you know, finding stuff that I didn't know existed in that keyboard before. Um, a different routing, a different modulation, a different preset and then kind of sculpting it you know just playing around with it a little bit more to my liking and then saving it and putting a a name to it so that i you know can identify in the future what it is 
What's the patch that doesn't work? What What's one of the patches? Can describe a patch to me that you, you want to get into the jam for this reason or that reason. What's the reason and what's the patch? Like sometimes like a really growly patch, you know, something that has a lot of like distorted overtones in it. Um, so I, I have a patch that I call Hammer Down. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like it's so fun to play because it's beefy. But it has all of the ranges in it. You know, it's got bass frequencies and it's got high frequencies. Mm. And if you just play it without adjusting the the cutoff, you know, it's just a, a loud sound. So you need to kind of play it with the cutoff and have that be the the undulation and the movement of the line behind it. But, you know, a lot of times, like, we all play acoustic instruments, you know, for, for better or for worse. I'm the only one in the band that has, you know, uh, the power of, you know, digital and analog synthesis behind me where I can create really, really big, massive tones. And sometimes because of that, I stand out like a sore thumb, you know. So <laughs> there's definitely, right? I mean, so a lot of the times, like, what are some patches that, you know, work almost all of the time? Well, Paddy sounds works almost all of the time, mm-hmm. but paddy sounds don't necessarily participate in the conversation. They provide a necessary bed for what's going on underneath everybody. And sometimes when they're not there, the band needs to be buttressed by something and pad provides that appropriate support. But it doesn't necessarily always have musical interplay with everything that's going on because, you know, the, the sound takes a little bit of time to develop. It takes a long time to decay. You can't necessarily play chord changes on it that are very discernible. You can't necessarily play melodies that are discernible until you make it a little bit more present by sculpting it. So, so I don't know. It's it's a it, it's a battle, but it's a battle that's really fun to have. And there's a certain synergy that exists with keyboard players, or at least you know with keyboard players like me, between the instrument and the musicality. So I'm not necessarily there thinking like, oh man, I have this great sound, but now I need to like roll down the release a little bit and turn off the cutoff knob. It's all kind of fluid. It's all one. And I feel like that's really what you know Bob Moog was originally going for, is this synergy between the musician and the actual um, uh, technology of the circuitry, where you could kind of like be one symbiotic. So, so let, me, let me ask, are you, are you always adjusting the ADSR while you're playing no, in your mind? No, no, no. Like, Don't. are you always like within reach and making little tweaks to it while you go? No, definitely not. And don't get me wrong. The best part is when you don't need to do that. Like, yes, it's, you know, I'm one and the synergy and blah, 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 blah. But the best part is when you can just play the fucking keyboard. Right. Because it's dialed, because it's dialed in perfectly. 100%. That is the Same with the guitar. I mean, I feel like with the guitar, I'm always fighting tuning. I'm always fighting the appropriate level of delay. I'm always fighting, honestly, the opposite of what you just said, because... You know, when you go heavy electronic, I feel like, oh, man, what does a guitar player do in this section? Like, maybe I'll play some funk because a funk line basically works at any point in time, almost. But right, it feels like, yeah, it feels like right. I'm always pulling your full synth in back into this era of microphone analog instruments. And you're feeling like it's getting pulled that way. And then... There's this kind of back and forth and the pull between sonic eras, if you will. So I feel like... Interesting. 
So is that is that a default that works for you? It was like when you don't know what to do, funk guitar will always work almost regardless of the of the genre or the of the musical situation that the rest of the band is in. I I would say um funk lines are a good option for me at any point in time. The problem with the funk line is that it does kind of flatten out and dorian out the jam if you will like uh-huh. Uh-huh. and for anyone listening dorian is just almost minor with a raised six and it's basically the funk too soon too soon what dorian. oh yeah no maybe too soon i you know it's funny because we just started talk. i just started talking about that all the time and then boom the storm hits and it's called that and what I'm trying to do is figure out how to add colors to the jam. So the first thing that you do is recognize what the jam is currently. And most funk is is Dorian. Most Miles Davis funk is Dorian. James Brown stuff is Dorian. So I feel like when I go to funk, it does pull that into play. And if you're doing something that is either like either either in the overtones of the keyboard patches that you're playing, like somewhere in there. There's other notes, and yeah. those other notes could be anywhere in the scale. I mean, they could be super harmonic minor. They could be super major, and it's the funk line will diminish those lines if I go there. So a lot of times I go to a, a one, two, five, one, two, four, five, or one, two, five, six box, and I'll just play like something rhythmic with a couple notes, generally staying away from threes and sevens. And try not to rest. I try not to rest on the one because Mark will probably rest there. And if I rest there, then I'm just kind of like forcing Mark to hit that note. Because if I'm hitting it, he's kind of has to hit. So I'll go, I'll do a one, two, four, five box. And I'll, and then if, if I feel like it's working really well, I'll move the box in the pattern that it is up a whole step. Or up a fourth, or I'll just move the pattern in somewhere up the neck that feels natural, feels good, and I won't even think about whether the notes work or not. But your fingers are in the same position. Your fingers are in the same position. Yeah, so I'll, you're, the same you're, pattern. I just box, move somewhere just else, and if it's not great, I can move it somewhere else after that. And then I'm kind of creating a chord progression. It's like once I know the rhythm of the notes in the pattern work with what you're playing. Then instead of just looping that pattern over and over again, I'll move it around the neck a little bit and see if I get a bite on a chord progression, see if Mark hits something with me, see if I hit something with you that's a little bit there. And if it doesn't work, I can always go back to the original. And if it does work, it gets awesome real fast. And I'm really not doing anything. I'm not guessing what you're playing. I'm not I'm just try I'm just kind of getting out of the way and playing something that moves around a little just to see what shakes out. I think the I think the biscuits would be way synthier if I could do that on like a little round short sustain square wave instead of a guitar. As as a as a mono note, as a one note thing or as, as opposed to chords? Yeah, as opposed to chords. I think that chords is like for a guitar player picking chords is something that we never really do. You know, I guess some guys can do it, but picking chords as a guitar player, it's like there's there's so many colors that piano players use naturally, little fours, little twos, that are just like you've been using them since you were a six. 
And guitar players, it's more like, you know, I want to be sedated block chords everywhere. And you have a tendency <laughs> to just kind of, you have a tendency to miss the nuance. You know what I mean? In, in fairness, power chords do not sound as powerful played on piano. You know, like the opposite thing. Like I, I hear what you're saying. There's a lot of colors that do come out of keyboard players more so than guitar players. But we, us keyboard players, can't get the same power out of power chords that guitar players can. Yeah, why is that? I don't know. It's it's it's. I mean, have you ever seen a keyboard player play a Ramon song? It's not a pretty sight, you know. Right? Have you? Do you think that's why dubstep is so dark? It's because the synth guys finally found something that could compete with Metallica and they just decided to go as dark as they could. You know what I mean? Like keyboard players have just been so sick of guitar players getting up on stage and being like, oh, I'm heavy, oh, I'm heavy. You know, and keyboard players being like, why can't I get heavy? And then finally they got dubstep and they figured out how to get heavy and now we have dinosaurs fighting and all this great heavy, heavy synth music. I mean, I do not know what the genesis of dubstep is, but to me it seems like art reflecting life. You know, it's just like there's so much advancement in technology and machines and software that like, of course, music is going to start to sound like it was, you know, made from machines, from dinosaur machines. But what do I know? I, I am I am not a dubstep historian. Yeah. Do they do they have dubstep historians? Is there such a thing? Excision. Can somebody give me the history of dubstep? It's definitely out there. The internet definitely has the history of dubstep. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I'm sure. I'm sure we could t- sit down with Excision, who played Campisco last year, and talk to him about what he's going for. And I'm pretty sure all of his answers would be surprising. And then we could probably cross-reference that with an interview from James Hetfield back before Metallica was famous, like in the early Johnny Z days. And they're probably saying the same thing, would be my guess, or similar things. Uh, Johnny Z just put out a book, by the way. No, did he? What's it called? Uh, I don't know the title. It like literally like came out this week or something like that. So yeah, wow. I don't know. There's got to be there's got to be some amazing Metallica stories in there. I am sure, and hopefully one or two good Disco Biscuit stories. <laughs> wow. So for everyone listening, Johnny Z was one was the Disco Biscuit's second manager, I believe. Uh, Peter Bond being the first would be my guess, and then maybe there's some. I don't know. There was, there was such a time, um, and I guess he uh, he just put out a book. I'm going to pick up his book and read it right now. I just got a book called Billion Dollar Whale uh, about this guy who who uh, figured out how to open up offshore accounts all over the world. But let me tell you, the best book I've read recently is called Welcome to Paradise, Now Go to Hell. And it's a surfing book. And it is awesome. So I have one more question here about the yeah. disco stage. Yeah. Um, people people want to know, because they know we use clocks, and they want to know... Well, can you explain the biscuit clock? How who controls it? You or Alan? What's the? How do you guys decide who's going to clock when? And what's? How would you explain that to the fan base? 
So first off, to the fan base, we're not talking about clocks as in, you know, 9.30 p.m. We're talking about uh, <laughs> uh, the, the, the sync of the computer. So both Alan and yes. I have computers on stage. And um, the way that it used to work in previous versions of Ableton was one computer definitively needed to be the master, um, which was Alan. And then my computer was slaved to him. Um, so whatever tempo that Alan would decide would be the tempo that my computer would instantly be at and I wouldn't be able mm-hmm. to control it. Now we're actually able to talk over our own network, over our own Wi-Fi network, and either one of us can be you know, masters and slave the other person. Um, there's some kinks in it, but it's really nice that there's no wires associated with it and everything like that. So what happens is Alan has a click in his ears, and I, I'm not sure whether ever, anybody else in the band, or, uh, you sometimes get click in your ears, right? You do. Mark? Mark. I get the click. I always I get both clicks. Yeah. Mark Mark doesn't and and maybe that's incredible, you know, in that like you don't necessarily know when Alan is synced to his computer. Mm-hmm. I have a little bit of click in my ears and it basically tells me, "Okay, Alan is going to his computer." Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that he's playing a pre-programmed beat, but he's starting to cl- uh clock in, right? So whole mm-hmm. He'll, he'll clock it, you know, he'll hit the button, the, the tempo button, you know, four times and then the tempo will start. And sometimes it will be a little bit off and he'll stop it and restart it. Maybe that will happen two or three times until he gets close enough for funk, if you will. And then a whole adjust the beat to go to the click because the click isn't necessarily going to be able to adjust to the band. But nobody is really none the wiser that we just sped up a BPM or two or slowed down a BPM or two. But now the whole band is playing to Alan who is on a click. Now my computer is also slave to him, which gives me the ability. All of my keyboards are routed in through my mixer and routed back into Ableton. So if I'm playing a line at the time and Alan clocks in i hear his click go on and i'm able to go to my computer hit record and the line that i'm physically playing at the time i could just have the computer pick that up and then that frees up a hand and i could begin to layer on top of it so you know if i'm playing a little bit complicated of a line that i wouldn't be able to play another line because it's a you know a two-handed line or something like that i can just hit record real quickly and then the computer will take care of the rest and now i've got both hands free i could build that bed i could put a pad underneath and that line that i was previously playing exists see that that sounds insane to me. It is. It is. It's insane. Honestly, I'm standing on the same stage with you. It feels like it's insane amount of work. How do, how do you set the beginning and the end of the loop? That's what I've never understood about this whole process. Like, how do you know you're looping it on eight beats or 16 beats or four beats or five beats? So good question. Um, I have my computer set for, where is it? I'm kind of looking at it now. Um, is it a quarter note or a half note? So I can let it go for however long I like. So if I'm playing a four-bar um, loop or let's say an eight-bar loop, I can let it go for eight bars and then a quarter of a beat before that eighth bar, before I want the loop to finish, I'll press the button. It doesn't have to be on the precise downbeat because it knows just skip forward a quarter of a beat, you know, so somewhere or a half of a beat. So somewhere between uh, whatever I set it at, a half of a beat or quarter of a beat, somewhere between those two things and the 
end of the actual phrase, you know, the end of an eight bar phrase, a four bar phrase, a 16 bar phrase, whatever it is, it will automatically know. And because we're on a click, it will just start over exactly where the one is. So that's the duration of that loop. And then if I move on to a different channel, I can have a new duration of a loop. I can have a two bar loop if I want, you know, on top of an eight bar loop. The problem with all this stuff, it's really fun to do, but you flash forward to two minutes later, three minutes later, and the rest of us humans on stage are beginning to tell a different part of the jam, the computer isn't able to react to that. So the computer will kind of like drag us back. You know, it's literally what just happened in keyboard world two or three minutes prior and is no longer able to contribute to the new conversation that's beginning to happen two or three minutes later and is just dragging the band back and back or making us stay constant. So over the last couple of years, I really have... I still have the technology set up if I find myself in an instant where I want to be able to grab it, but I've definitely been deliberately not doing that because I think that it stymies the band's improvisational progress. Yeah, it's hard to improv with a computer that's not improving. You know, it's like, okay, I do this and then doesn't change, and then I'll do this and then doesn't change. It. Have you ever experimented with having a button that just like turns all the loops off at a certain time, or is that just... Too heavy-handed for this type of work. Oh, oh yeah. I, I, I have my hotkey set to Q, and that means all, all loops stop. You know, And then, of course, on the APC, I can just stop whatever's on track one or whatever's on track two. But all loops stop is Q for quit, whatever. It's just the, the key mm-hmm. that I hit it towards. Building something, even if it's just one line and then I want to take it out of the mix, it, it, it's gone. And it feels like somebody pulled the rug out, at least from underneath me. I'm not sure how it feels for everybody else. But for me, it feels like something that was just there is now definitively not. Hmm. I feel that way too. Right. How do you have like a nice, uh, I don't know whether segue is the word, but you know, to, to progress from where a line was in and then you want to take it out, but you don't want it to be such a steadfast stop. So you can roll a delay on it and let the delay carry it out so that there's not a definitive drop. You could roll a reverb up or you could just fade it out. You know, something so that it doesn't feel like it just got ripped out from underneath you. And at least I'm not sure whether the audience notices or whether you guys notice. But for me, it will really take me out of the zone if something suddenly comes out from under my feet. The loops automatically faded out. Maybe that would be a good solution. Like as you set the loop. Yeah, that, that, that's usually what I do. It just automatically gets quieter every time it plays 16 times and it's fading out the whole time. Sure. Just a thought. But I, I don't know how easy that is to do. I mean, it seems like. This is so complicated. It, you, it, it almost feels like you can't just do this off the top of your head. You have to get on stage, try it, see what works, keep that, fix what doesn't work. And you have to do that over and over and over again until you get to the stage that you're at now. And then you're like, you know, I don't even want to use this this feature because it's just too complicated and it's, it just makes it harder for everybody to jam. It, it almost feels like I just want to go play a grand piano. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like maybe that was part of the inspiration too. not having to deal with all that bullshit because technology can yeah. bite you in the ass a lot of time. Even if it's not a computer, even if it's just a synthesizer, mm-hmm. you know, you can start to like sculpt, sculpt the sound and things will happen that you were not expecting. Right. And that's really cool in a studio environment. Yeah. Yeah. It's great if you're Pink Floyd and you're in a studio for six months high on acid pressing every button on the keyboard but on stage people have a with today's music being so like dj'd and cut up and already pre-produced 
it feels like doing something really raw like what we do there are you we do have to take a lot of precautions to keep the you know all the sounds from being too janky or too crazy even though we require yep. the craziness because we we're required to go to these different places in every jam every single night at the same time we have to like you know kind of control the craziness at the same time but janky and crazy can be cool and inspiring sometimes you know when you got those new pedals that makes your guitar sound a little bit more like a synth that was i presume inspiring for you you know to be able to finally get a tone out of your guitar that could make it go popping bottles what do you call it popping bottles that's what that refers to (laughs) popping bottles is is when you guys are playing like Pretty heavy EDM, and there's no guitar line, but there is a whip, 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 you know. Popping bottles. I think the thing about popping bottles is it requires even more EDM out of the band, so I, I can only fit it in occasionally. And the other sound that I have is a great sound for the one, two, four, five box pattern. Got it. Just great for that. It just it, it's a small little square wave sounding sound. And I could, if you go heavy synth, I can do that with you. And the, we've we've gotten we played a couple of those jams on the podcast already. Cool, because they sound really crazy and really good. Let me ask you about the choice of resurrection for the Spaga band, as opposed to maybe Spy or Spaga or Digital Buddha or even maybe a piano version of Great Abyss. Like, how did you come around to choose Resurrection? Well, I definitely knew that I wanted one biscuit song on the album to you know make sure that biscuit fans were aware that the album existed right and that was my ability to kind of you know draw people in to at least listen to one song out of curiosity um, I've always felt like there was a certain swagger that existed in that song um, that I don't want to say we necessarily we, we didn't necessarily achieve as a band. I'm I'm very aware of you know the the differences of how that song exists in both environments, and I don't necessarily need to try and you know carry those traits over from one project to another. The fast part, though, right? The fast part is totally different on the Spaga Band version. The circus part, yeah, the circus part's totally different, right? And honestly, I didn't even realize that's how you were hearing it. Interesting. That part always felt like. To me, like, okay, what is this part? I don't quite understand what he's going for here. And, you know, the biscuit thing that we do is cool, but, like, I get it a lot more uh, in the Spaga version, for sure. Like, do you feel like, is that the part you're talking about, or are you talking about the song, the yeah. whole song? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But well, the swagger, I'm talking about the verses, and then the the, the part that we're, we were just referring to, I guess, uh, you know, I, I refer to it as the circus section. Right. Um, and... We definitely toyed around with a couple different ways of trying to present that because I definitely had the eyebrow raises when I was teaching the song to to, to Scarano and Fraticelli. <laughs> like, wait, you know, and I, this happens a lot in, yeah, in yeah. Magner songs. Um, in that, like, there's a section that comes after another <laughs> section that doesn't necessarily make any sense from the section that preceded it or the section that it's going towards. Um, but you know, I'm not. I, I wasn't trying to rewrite the song. Um, and I, I kind of feel like that it, it's not my favorite part of the song. It's not my favorite of the sections, but it does work and it breaks it up a little bit. There's like some cool studio techniques. I run the piano through a Leslie. I like reamp it through a Leslie, which is kind of a cool effect that you don't really hear. You only really hear organs through Leslie's. So I played the piano and then we ran the signal from the piano directly into a Leslie and then mic'd it from there. So I had 
already played the line and then re-recorded it as it got played to Leslie, just to kind of like, you know, a studio trick that sounded fun at the time. And it also gives it, because of the spinning sound of a Leslie, a little bit more of that circusy vibe. I like that part. I feel like that part is much more of a wind-up on the Spagavan version. Like it's almost like a, you know, it's almost like a huge build. Instead of a section, it's a build to the next yeah. section. And it's just a really yeah. long build instead of a yeah. shorter build. I like that take on it. It was kind of cool. It kind of feels like a, like when the Roadrunner spins around and then he runs away, <laughs> right? It feels like the part where the Roadrunner spins around and he's about to take off. I love that. So let me ask you... Let me ask you real quick, Spaga, the band, uh, besides, obviously, when this drops, the shows, you've already played the shows in New York and in Philly. So what else do you guys have on the schedule? Are there more Spaga shows coming up? Um, there's some festivals. There's a uh, residence festival in, towards the end of September. There's Halloween at the end of October. Um, there's Jam Cruise in January. I mean, my, my theory with this project is that it will be easier to make people understand that music is that music can be different and just music for the sake of music as opposed to going to jazz festivals which we also did this summer and you know got surprisingly good receptions but as opposed to pigeonholing ourselves into jazz clubs and jazz festivals and making people that really appreciate jazz uh, appreciate us i kind of think I want to have a bigger pool of people to choose from to have them come and listen to just good music. I asked Fraticelli that. I was like, what is this music? Like, yes, we it's just piano, bass, and drums, but it doesn't necessarily swing. And that's kind of one of the identifiable parts of jazz, you know? So like, mm-hmm. and then there's always the question of like, well, what is jazz? And there's that whole, you know, conversation that exists in, in the jazz world. But at the end of the day, Fraticelli was like, I don't know, man, it's just good music. And I was like, okay, well, you know, that's not really a category, but I'll take it. So I, I think the what I'm trying to accomplish is that this project can exist side by side as it did in June at a festival like Rochester International Jazz Festival and then the next day Electric Forest. And I think that the juxtaposition of those two things, I mean, it's more of a theory that I'm trying to test out of whether this can exist in, you know, multiple different worlds. And I, I, you know, and again, I don't even know the future of the project. Like, you know, I wanted to make an album for the sake of just making a music and actually having an idea and following it through because I'm really good at starting ideas, but I'm not really good at finishing ideas. So that was one of the things that I was really like proud of myself for is like, you know, I actually finished something and then wherever it that's what I like about the podcast. Yeah, exactly. And that was part of your ethos behind I the podcast. get to finish something every fucking week. And you, you set a goal to do 11 episodes, um, and now you're taking it to 20, right? Yeah. Yeah, we're going to go to 20. I don't know. It's a lot every week. I'll tell you that much. I'm it's a sh- lot. I'm sure. I got other shit to do, but uh, I don't know what we're going to do about balancing the podcast with everything else, but... I mean, it's there's it's so many positives in the podcast. It's, it really is unbelievable, but it's hard. What about spacing spacing it out every other week? Does that does that afford you a little bit more time to continue it? Or the fans? Yeah, for sure. Demanding I, I, every week, I can't get my fix enough. There's some of that. There is some of that. I mean, part of me feels like the podcast is good. People like it. It's a lot of positive energy. It's really great for me. I mean, listening to this conversation that you and I are having is awesome. Me listening to the biscuits every week is awesome. 
Uh, it's very inspirational. I mean, I get to listen to the different kinds of music that we make, and and I'm like, sometimes I don't even know what band I'm listening to, honestly, because it's just so crazy and awesome. And and the fans really like the podcast. A lot of people reach out to me. It's 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 a really great thing. It's really hard to cut a podcast every week. It's two nights a week of you know where I could be doing other things. Maybe for the band, we have an album, we have a tour. You know, there's a lot of other things to do. So. I, I don't I don't feel like I mean I understand what you're saying like you have this concept where you have this band you want to see how the band plays on different stages and you're not quite sure what kind of music it is from my point of view I mean to be honest with you I and mean, you've been playing keyboards since probably before you really spoke English very well and keyboard I when I played with you for a long time I don't know anyone who has more of a natural command of their instrument than you do. I really, just to be oh, honest, stop. I've never seen anybody just more naturally able to play the instrument without any, you know, conscious brain interference. And I feel like Spog is a, is, is a compositional outlet. It's not a jazz band. It's not a rock band. It's you're, you're, comp, you're composing with the other guys and you have this fluid compositional style which works really great and I feel like this album is the, maybe the first and the second album is probably going to be amazing and the third album is going to be unbelievable I just feel really positive on this band I feel like you guys you could put this band anywhere that you want and I like the fact that you, you've accomplished this it's very cool great to listen well thank you I really appreciate that yeah it's awesome I mean look the, there's there's no Keith Jarrett anymore. There's no Oscar Peterson anymore. We have Jesus Molina. But the world needs more, I think, piano players who have that complete flow of instrumental talent. And you have that. So to give that to the world is valuable. Uh, thank you. And that, that, that itself is great. And, you know, I feel the same way about the podcast. The podcast flows. And to provide the podcast for the audience is valuable. It's just hard work. Sometimes sometimes hard work is just that, you know? It might be good, it might be bad, but hard work is hard work. But you do it. I mean, you, 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 you set a tone and you do it. Have you ever thought about doing a live podcast, a live version of the show? Yeah, I don't know what that is. I, I, I don't know, like, I, we've thought, yeah, we talked about it. I feel like it would be cool to do... Um, the podcast actually came out of my acoustic show, which I did last year because it was hard. You know, I was like, well, what's the hardest thing to do? An acoustic show. All right, I'll do 10 acoustic shows. And I found that like the the part of talking to the audience was the most fun part. And I didn't want to lose that, but I didn't want to also practice needle in the damage done one more time. So I figured let's let's just put it into the podcast. So I don't know. I don't it's 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 basically come out of doing hard things. Like Spock, a band you probably thought when you started, well, this is really hard to make a band out of scratch. No music, no players even. Let me make a project from scratch. That's a really hard thing to do. You need a website, spagaband.com. You need the at Spagaband, Twitters. There's all these little things that go into making a band from scratch that make it hard to do. And then they don't even have anything to do with the music. You still have to play the music. And um, I think that everybody in the fan base agrees that the music is awesome. Let's take a shot at this Tron jam. 
So you got that chromatic guitar thing right there? I do. All right, cool. Oh, so this is fun. Now we can just listen and talk or not talk. Yeah. And I guess this is kind of meta because we're listening to the jam and the jam we're watching the movie. Right. So this is like super meta right now where this is the director's cut of the musical cut of the movie. I think we're standing even behind. Weren't we behind the movie screen for this? Uh, we were behind the screen for this, and then I had it synced on my computer because I have a screen, like an in- individual screen that I was able to watch. It's wild that we get up there without having any idea what's about to happen with confidence and just do our thing. Yeah, it is weird. Like, we didn't watch the movie or learn the soundtrack of the movie or any of that stuff. Ooh. Why do you think that is? Why do you think we like to go up there purposefully without any of the musical materials? Well, I mean, it takes away from some of the... um being in the moment and seeing what happens. If you're trying to recreate something that didn't, you know, exist before, it takes away. Definitely has a Tron-y vibe. Yeah, it feels very Tron.
That was a great climax, I think, right there. Certainly. Out of the chord progression. How many keyboard sounds do you have going on at that point at the top where you have that low growl and then it sounded like a third low sound and you're also carrying the main melody of the jam? Is that is there is there anything else going Can't on tell. in there? should re-watch this with the video so we can actually comment on whether or not this is I mean this sounds to me like we're really going with the video right now where where Mark actually just pushed a five and we're changing keys and we're going into this like very patty like happier world right we're clearly reacting to something that's happening on the screen which is the intent Yeah, it's because it seems like this almost sounds like just a normal biscuit jam, except for there is that other component of like what is going on on the screen that goes with this.
So how do you sync that patch right there that you have coming in? Are you tapping that? Um, tweaking it with my middle finger and thumb. So you're actually like playing that rhythm. Playing the rhythm with my right hand and then tweaking with my left. Yeah, really quick key change out of nowhere like that. How do we do that stuff? That's I like it. that though. That's a that was a really just for people listening. There was a nice combination there. We had a, a little simple chord progression that we were kind of taking in and out, and then we went to it. And then when you came out onto the melody there, you seem to have pulled out of all those chords 
a single note that you could tweak and synthesize on its own. And when you went to that, it became a melody. And then me and Mark immediately dropped the changes and just looped the root and got funky right there. And it kind of served as a, you know, a climax of that whole building section. And it led naturally to the key change. I don't know why we did that key change. Maybe we looked at each other. Or maybe me and Mark just guessed the note at the same time. Because as I was saying earlier, I'll do that. I'll jump that whole step up. If I'm in a little funky box like I was in there, I'll jump up that whole step at any point in time, really. And I think maybe Mark just guessed a whole step at the same time. The key change is probably as simple as that. This is fun. Yeah, we should really remake this with the video and put it down for everybody to hear. Because this, this is a really great jam. I can't wait to watch Tron with this. We have such an interesting and immediately identifiable sound to us. What pedal is that? That's my arpeggio pedal turned on max, basically. Max arpeggio? Yeah, I have it set now to be a little flavor on on high notes at the top of the jam where you can barely hear it. That was This is 2015. That back then I had it set on max and I used to use it like that, just like in freak out moments. So there we have it. Tron Jam, Aaron Magner on the show. Really great biscuit jam there. A lot of fun to listen to. Really cool stuff. That's it, man. That's our interview. I feel good about it. We covered some really great bases here. And I think we got a lot of interesting stuff for people to listen to. And uh, I'm glad we got to talk. I'm glad you came on the show. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, man. You know, long-time listener, big-time fan, first-time caller. Thanks, John. Thanks, Touchdowns. We're mass communicating. We're mass communicating.